I do love going verse by verse through scripture from one side of the book to the other. You can't avoid anything that scripture says and you can't invent things it doesn't because it's just what the, it's letting the Bible teach. That's the fun of it. At least as far as I'm concerned. I fell in love with the Lord through this book. I wasn't born and raised a Christian. Uh, I found Christ, or Christ I should say found me if you will, though he knew where I was the whole time. Uh, when I was 19 and uh, but I really didn't know him in a way that I could say that I love him until I opened up this book and realized who he really is. Well, with that in mind, in John chapter 3, we pick it up in verse 19. We'll read it one more time, if you would. Read it with me. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, again, I just pray, as my brother Daniel prayed, we pray, God, that you would illuminate your word now. Open our eyes and our hearts to receive all that you have for us. More than just time to to tick a box, God, we've come to love you and know you more. So do that, Lord, I pray. May your word burst open and come alive for each of us, more, more real and more pertinent than ever before. And I pray now, God, that you would do this amazing thing, that you would profoundly captivate us in your word. May we have so much fun learning of you. And in that, may we, in knowing you more, love you more. May we understand greater the calling you've placed in our life. May we greater understand the victory that we have in you. So we commit this time to you now. Redeem every second, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as it would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's ever true because somebody with a mic says anything. Search the scriptures and test everyone you listen to. Everyone, doesn't matter who they are, how powerful they are, what they may wave or what they may wag. In the end of it all, scripture is to test all things. And scripture even tells me that. It says to test all things. Hold on to the good and avoid all types of evil. The word for test, by the way, side note, not in my own here, but is the word dokumazete, and it's a great word. It means a money wearer. Uh, in the days when we were exchanging currency, believe it or not, there was a day when one... Uh, our money actually contained the amount that was actually set on the coin. In other words, a pound, for instance, would have been worth that much in what precious metal it would be made of. That would be the idea of a shilling and so forth. And so if you looked at it, you could just sort of take it at face value. You could see what's printed on it, but it should weigh out. And the idea is that an intelligent person that was in exchange would take that money and take the tried and tested weight on one side and put the money on the other to make sure that it weighed out. So it didn't just look like it from the surface, but it was good through and through. We get that when we exchange money today. Perhaps you've ever seen that. You hand in money. I normally, very seldomly, ever have the kind of money, even if it's sort of fives, where they have to weigh it because it takes at least a few of those for them to do it. But, you know, you give them money and they put it out on one side and they make sure that it weighs what it says it does. Well, that's what he tells us we're supposed to do with everything. We're supposed to take all things and we're to weigh it on the tried and tested and true weight, if you will, of the scripture. Well, with that in mind, 
here we are in this context of John chapter 3. And I want to go back for a moment, all the way back to the book of Genesis, and show you something that God has been preparing all the way into this encounter that he has with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 1, and if you flip there with me, and I won't be there long, but I, at least I wanted to kind of show a precedent God has said. It says this in the beginning. Uh, it says, but In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering. The word there is rachaf. Try that word, rachaf. Go, come on now, you can't go, rachaf. Now I'm going to give it to you. You give it to me, rachaf. Thank you, nicely done. It means to move. It's all it means. It means to move. And one way or another, the Spirit of God was moving. We read it as hovering. Some people even want to say he was dancing. Regardless of what, one thing we'd say is he was moving. Now, I've met some people that their dancing is just moving. But anyway, the idea here is that the Spirit was moving over the face of the waters. And then God said, let light be. And there was light. God saw the light and it was good and he divided the light from the darkness and God called the light day, the darkness he called night. So evening and the morning were the first day. Now we know from there God will then create lights in the skies, a sun and a moon and stars, if you will, to govern and help guide. And then from there, and guide in the sense, for instance, of a ship and a sailor, those things are very important. And then he says in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, God said, let us. Beautiful because even in the beginning when we read God, it was in the plural, Elohim. Here it's in the when God says, let us make asach, man in our image, according to our likeness, dominion, and let him dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, the cattle of the earth, all over the earth and over everything that creeps on the earth. So God created, but a man in his own image, in the image of God, he created a male and female, he created them, and then God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And it says, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every creeping thing or living thing that moves on the earth. Now, it is important to recognize, very, and I'll try to keep away from too many side notes, because a pastor is good like a pencil without a point. It's just a stick. Anyways, with that, he, the, notice there is a blessed marriage. Immediately, with God's, in, with God's intention with man, he made them male and female, and it's already in his heart. He'll develop that in chapter 2. And he tells us what a blessed, the first thing he does in that marriage is he blesses it. And he tells us what a blessed marriage looks like. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Might I say that a blessed marriage is two very simple things. It is authoritative and fruitful. It's that simple. That's what God's blessing looks like on a marriage. Now, with that in mind, here's the whole point of it. Is the order that, if you notice, that what took place here is that, first of all, God's spirit moves, and then God's word went forth, and then came light, and then came life. That was the order. The spirit moved, God's word went forth, Light came, and then life came. I'll say it one more time, and let's see if you can give it back to me. God's spirit moved, his word went forth, light came, and then life came. You try it. God's spirit, his word, for forth, light came, and then life came. Beautiful. And that's the whole point here, is that God has set something in motion, that light must precede life. There is no life on the planet that cannot exist without some form of light. Even all the way down into the depths of the sea, they're discovering where none of the sunlight makes it in. There's light that is emitted from the deep caverns of these volcanoes that they're starting to draw from in all of this. And the reason I say that is, is that God set this up, that light must come in before life comes. Now, for what it's worth in all of that, we go all the way back to John chapter 1. Now, go to the beginning of John chapter 1. It says, 
In the beginning was the word. Notice in both Genesis 1 and in John 1, we start with in the beginning. We're starting at the same point. I hate to say point in time because it's kind of the first point in time, if you will. Now, is there anyone here other than me that wondered what in the world was God doing before he created all of this? I mean, there's an infinite past. I have no idea. Maybe I'll get it. Well, we'll have enough time to ask him when the time comes. Until then, my mind's blown by the thought that there was a start in time and God was before that. But in the beginning, there was this word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Somehow, God was with God, and it says that he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him, nothing that was made was made. So if it was, if it was created, Jesus was involved in it. And notice it says in verse 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Notice again, we have God Existing with God, just like we did in the beginning of Genesis, where the Spirit of God was, was hovering over the waters, while God himself, Elohim, is about to pronounce. And then what we read is <clears throat> that the light shone in the darkness. And he gives us another property here, as we see light not only preceding life, but it tells us in verse 5 that the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness could not or did not comprehend it. Now, here's one more word, and I won't do this the whole time, but it's kind of fun to get you back with it. Uh, the word is katalambano. Try that. Katalambano. Now, we've moved from Hebrew to Greek. Now, if you've ever met a Greek person, nobody in that I've ever met that's Greek goes, katalambano. They're like, katalambano. You know, there's always, you know, like, they're, oh, they're talking about the weather, but they look angry. Anyways, so katalambano. Try it. It should come out like a, like a machine gun. Then you're saying Greek, right? Katalambano. Oh, that was nice. That was very nice. Now, here's the point of it. The word katalambano, lambano means to grab a hold of, and kato means according to. It's actually a wrestling term. And the idea is quite simple. When two guys would wrestle, and you're probably familiar with Greek culture, gymnas, like gymnasium means naked, because guys would get naked. They'd grease themselves up, and they'd try to wrestle. And this was sport. Personally, for me, two naked guys wrestling, not a sport for me. But uh, to watch or to be part of, to be honest. Nonetheless, and the idea of it was is that there was something that tried to go. And, you know, obviously, if you've ever fought competitively, I did, but it was more, I don't want to say more, because it's not more contact than that, but more from a martial arts perspective. There was this idea that, you know, you get, you actually, you can get a hold on someone or you take someone down. A hold is, of course, the gateway to taking someone down. So you kind of mark the holds and you mark the times you get the guy. And if you get the guy down for a count of three, well, then you get the game's over. You've won. Now, the point of all of that is, is that today, for instance, if, you were, if you've ever watched any other kind of competitive sports, what they, the fighting, for instance, and, and I'm not recommending it, it's a bit Neanderthalic, they, they count how many punches are landed, where somebody really landed a good punch. Because even if the two of them kind of, in the end of it all, knocked themselves silly, but neither one fell over completely, well, they're going to have to count those particular points. And the reason I say that this word katalambano is the idea that it's like something couldn't even land a punch. In the end of it all, when they have to count up the score, there were two things at battle, and one thing on the one side had all kinds of points, and the other one on the other side had zero. That's the point of katalambano. And the reason I say that is it says light shines in the darkness. So guess what two things were boxing in the ring there? Light and darkness. And what it tells us was not that light won, or that light overcame, it tells us that the darkness couldn't even land a punch. Now that's different altogether. Because there's so many times, and forgive me for saying, but I think the worst proclaimers of Jesus in the world, as far as doctrinally, are often Christians. 
We make Jesus sound like him and Satan are like two big titans fighting it out. And you know, Jesus is on the ropes. And oh, it's oh, so close. And oh, Satan's got him down. One, two, oh. It's like that kind of wrestling nonsense sometimes where you see the guy and you're like, oh, oh, he's up. You know, oh, here comes the chair. And you know, and the reason I say that is what, what he's telling us here is that darkness didn't stand a chance against the light. Listen, listen, listen. Darkness will never overcome light. Darkness is not the overcomer of light, darkness is only, you ready for this? The absence of it. That's it. The reason why something's dark is because light's just not there. What he tells us in verse 5 is, is that when light shone in the darkness, darkness did not stand a chance. Back in Genesis, when God put put light into, into action and he spoke light into being, darkness didn't have a say in it. There was no vote and it was close. God's God. He can do what he wants. And when he put light into motion, darkness just had to say, yes, sir, and back off. That's the idea. So when someone comes to you and you're a Christian and they're like, where are you? Oh, you're in Camden. Oh, you're in London. Isn't that a dark place? I would say, not anymore. I mean, we're here. And the moment you're there, if you are the light of the world as Christ called you, well, then it's not dark anymore. You're like, you could feel the darkness. Well, can you imagine if darkness could have a meaning? You could just feel the light. You could watch that guy walk by and you could just feel it. I mean, too bad we couldn't hear that conversation. And the whole point of it, in the beginning, light is always going to precede life. Remember, God's spirit moved and then God's word went forth and then came light and then came life. And what we see is when light came, darkness didn't stand a chance. Now, the light he's speaking of here was in the life of an individual that God called the Word. Huh. So God's Spirit moved, and the Word went forth. The Word that went forth in John had a name. And the Word's name is Jesus. And it tells us when that Word was manifest, in other words, pitched His tent among us, that Word pitched His tent among us, then came life. Because God's Spirit moved, His Word went forth came forth, then came light, and then came life. There is the point as we prepare now, and although this is in a lengthy introduction to get us to our text, but it's only three verses, as you see. Now, get this. It tells us this in verse 6 of John chapter 1. There was a man that was sent from God. His name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness to the light that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but he was sent bear witness to the light that was the true light that gives light to to every man coming into the world. Now we're going to Jesus. He was in the world, and though the world was made by him or through him, just like we saw in the beginning of John 1 and in Genesis. It says, the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, he gave them a right to become children children of God, to those who believe in his name. Look at verse 12 with me for a moment. Don't lose me. Verse 12 told us that there were two things that people did. What are the two things that they did to become children according to verse 12? You tell me. Beautiful. They received and they believed. Oh, that is so beautiful. By the way, both of those terms are passive. Well, actually, the first is passive. The second is active. Now, let me explain that in a way we might get. Oh, look, here's a bird thing. 
An active action is something that a person makes a choice to do. All he, for the action to happen, a person in an active tense has to actually make it happen. For this bird thing to get at Hugo, that's the young man here in the front, I have to throw it or in one way or another bring this thing over to him. But for him to receive this thing, he has to do nothing. It's going to come at him whether he likes it or not. That's passive. As a matter of fact, if he doesn't want to get hit by it, and assuming I have fairly decent aim, if things are still in order, well, then all he has to do is nothing, but he'll have to do an awful lot to avoid it. So, nicely done. Nice job with the bird thing. Now, here's the point of it. It tells us for those who received him. In other words, God was being, the word was being tossed at us, was the idea. We didn't have to go and run for it or fight for it. Maybe you've heard it said to fight to gain, you'll have to fight to maintain. If you've got to fight to get it, you've got to fight to keep it. There's the problem. That's the problem in any relationship. If you have to pretend to get it, you're going to have to pretend to keep it. Isn't it nice to know that God knew everything about us and yet still thrust himself at us? And yet in all of that, though, there was a response ultimately. In the end of it all, that thing winds up in Hugo's lap. Now, here's the good news for neither one of us is that neither of us own that thing. So I'm not giving it to you and you're not keeping it. Uh, So for the record, we have it on tape. All right, now, hear me. But if that were mine and I tossed it at him, he will receive it simply by doing nothing. It'll come at him. But in the end of it all, he'll choose whether or not he wants to keep it. And God has thrust himself at every man. The word of God manifest the light of the world coming at man has come before man and man had a choice. At that moment, if he simply were willing to receive that, all he has to do at that point is believe. Epistucho, the word simply means to trust. If he was willing to trust, in this case, my kindness that it was a good thing, trust that I wasn't going to throw it at him at a particular velocity that and somehow could cause damage. But in the end of it all, that it was something, oh, that guy's kind. Okay, in the end of it all, he's a practical joker, but he probably, he means well. In that, he would gladly, if he would, okay, I'll take it. Cool. Well, there's the idea here. But if we were willing to do that, anyone, notice it says, it doesn't say some, it doesn't say that there were certain ones that were offered. It says every human being on the planet was offered this. God threw himself at every human being. And in throwing himself at every human being, anyone, anyone, that includes you. And that includes the crazy person in Camden right now yelling at their storefront window. That includes the crazy person who showed up late to open up shop. That includes the guy that has his eyes dyed black a couple doors down from there so he could try to freak you out. Or the one who's got the teeth chiseled into sharp points. It's Camden, right? Let's face it. You want to look weird in Camden? Look normal. Well, anyways, you get the idea. Well, but any of those people, God throws himself at them and they have a choice, which means they have to actively refuse that. They have to actively refuse it to step away or push away to not receive it. But then there are others that will kind of entertain for a month, but in the end of it all, they'll be like, nah, yeah, I've taken a look at it, but I'm not, I really am not interested. There's the idea. And it tells us here that those who would receive him and those who believed, well done, by the way, he gave them a right to become children of God. And by the way, not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but born of God. And guess what happened again? Life came. The word, God's spirit moved. His word went forth. Light came and life came. There was the idea. Well, with that in mind, as God's spirit moves, God's word goes forth and the world, light comes and with it life. In this case, God forms, interesting, a new man. 
That was the idea in John 1. Interesting, because God formed a man back in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, in light of all of that precedent, here's our context. Jesus, after manifesting his glory at a wedding, uh, and of course doing some spring cleaning in his house for some, for some prayer, he finds respite in the evening air. And there under the cloak of night, a religious leader now shows up. He slips in or slides into Jesus' company. Now, by the way, look at John chapter 3. Look at the first few verses. That's your context. And the reason, I ask you, the reason I say this, let me ask you, does it say anywhere in there that Nicodemus shows up at Jesus' house? Does it show anywhere where Jesus is? No. Well, we paint it that way, often because we have movies that kind of portray it that way. Nowhere do we have that. As a matter of fact, what Jesus would say to a man in, in Luke 19, when a man says, I'll follow, he says, birds of the air have nests and foxes have holes. He goes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was, for the most part, once he began his ministry, he was homeless. That's kind of, well, homeless temporarily, because his permanent address, by the way, he was going to head back to after a couple years, three and a half. The reason I say that is, let's put it in a new context then. Let's put it in what we have here. If Jesus really were, what we might say, sleeping in the Thousand Star Hotel. You get what that is, right? That's where you lay and you rest your head and there's a thousand stars above you. Well, if Jesus were there, imagine this man comes to him under the cloak of night. What if it were outside where what we could hear at that moment is the wind blow by us? From where and to where, we wouldn't know. We wouldn't know. And still yet in all of this, this man comes under the cloak of darkness. One thing we don't know, we don't know whether he's in a house, but one thing we do know is that he is in the night that he is coming. And still he comes. He's thrust by a curious heart that craves the eternal, like Ecclesiastes 3, by the way, 11 tells us. But he has a mind that is slaved and starved by the temporal fundaments of this world. And yet he's religious. And yet in all of his religion, all of his practices, he got nothing. He is hungry. The narrative resumes in verse 22. You'll notice that in verse 22 where John the Baptist shows up and we get back into that. So that means that basically from the beginning of the chapter through verse 21, well, that's all Jesus' discourse with this man, Nicodemus. Nikos, like Nike, like your shoes, means victory. Dimas means people. So his name means victory over the people, an interesting name. The living word now, full of life, that is the light of men, speaks about a new birth, a heavenly one, and a new life, an eternal one. And the spirit moving through Jesus, in essence, like Noah's dove, is seeking a place to light upon in actually Nicodemus's heart. He moves Jesus to launch flight to this issue of a new birth. And Nicodemus, who's supposed to be a hired representative of the eternal, can only relate to the earthly. Here's our problem, temporary. With a mind engulfed in the haze of the worldly traditions and the basic worldly principles, like the sweating fog of June in London. And thus, like all earthly things, Nicodemus goes to and he lunges for the how. How do I do this? How do I do this? How can a man be born when he's old? How can these things be? And yet Jesus, the light of the world, dispels the overcast miasma by shining upon the spot, not on the how, but on the who. He's asking, how can a man be born again? And Jesus is like, it's who that a man is born again. And he says, as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And that cross then becomes the olive branch and faith is the landmass for which the ark now rests. And all life emanates from there. But in the late evening tide of shadows and indigo sky, a growing night of silent fear and fractious rock peaking, Jesus wants Nicodemus to step out into the bright and brave new world of faith. 
He has come under the cloak of darkness, but Jesus wants him to step into the light. In verses 17 and 18, and this is why we'll get right into our text now, he says, For the God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, for he has not believed in the only begotten Son of God. God's mission was not to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. It was to shower the already condemned world with salvation. And three simple statements now, in essence, encapsulate the entirety of it. What salvation does, or if I might say it, the brilliance of salvation and how it does, and the darkness of condemnation and what that looks like. And he says, this is the verdict. So, we're sitting outside. It's cool out. If it's still in the Passover that we read back in chapter, the end of chapter 2, it's roughly late March, early, August, early April. During that particular time, the rains have subsided, and it is roughly between 10 and 15 degrees outside. Or if you will, roughly between 60 and 70. Well, between 50 and 65 degrees outside Fahrenheit. And it's breezy. That is a breezy time, and there's a lot of pollen in the air. And at the Sea of Galilee, where we've been many times, in the evening sky, the sky clears up almost every night for you to see a brilliant canopy of stars. And there's somewhere out in the cool. Now, more than likely, if this is still in Passover, down near the Mount of Olives where Jesus often stayed, this man sneaks into his company and asks, And he thinks that Jesus must be an amazing man of God because miracles are happening and Jesus says miracles are not the end game. You need to be born again. And he tells him, this is the verdict, Nicodemus. Now the word for for verdict, by the way, for what it's worth, is a simple word. The word is krisis. Can you try the word krisis? If we were to spell it in English letters, it would be K-R-I-S-I-S. You want to guess what word we get from that? Crisis. And crisis, by the way, simply means a point of choice or change. It's important to recognize every time you're in a crisis, a decision needs to be made. You wouldn't be in a crisis if you didn't have to make a decision. And the reason I say that is we read it as condemnation, though the word krinas is traditionally the word for condemnation. That's where a judgment is being passed. Now instead, Jesus is throwing into the lap of Nicodemus, you're in a crisis right now. I've just spoken to you about the most, the verse, by the way, that's going to end up at every football match. They're going to put it on, they're going to spray paint it on bed sheets and hang it over the end of railings. John 3.16, that comes right, that is in the middle of this discourse with this man. He says, for God so loved the world. We need to recognize, on one side there is a love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. He says, Nicodemus, you need to know that there is that love and God loves you and he sent me, his only begotten son, the only one of his gene pool so that he could come and give you life. I'm going to give my life to give you life, Nicodemus, and you're now in a crisis. The crisis is not because you don't have an opportunity. The crisis is not because you don't have a choice. The crisis is because you have a choice. He goes, but here's the problem, if you will. The decision, you would think this would be a no-brainer. You ever share the Lord with somebody and they don't want it and you think, how? How could you not want this? What's wrong with you? Now, if we really kind of get self-consumed, we think we failed. But in the end of it all, if they say, no, they failed. We offered it to them. We had offered them the greatest thing in the universe. And if they say no, it's like, what in the world? What is wrong with you? Well, Jesus tells us here. He says, here is the verdict. 
Or if you will, here is the crisis we are in, Nicodemus. Light has come into the world. But I want to remind you, we know what happens when light comes in the world. God's spirit is moved. His word has gone forth. Then comes light. And then comes life. And that's been the point. He says, light has come into the world. And God, by the way, loves to move in light. Light must precede life because God must send life, light, if you will, to bring life. And he tells us this. It's interesting because after Genesis 1, where light came first, light came, by the way, I don't know if you're familiar, but in Exodus chapter 10, when God is pouring forth his plagues, it was the one that separated Israel from Egypt because it was the one place that wasn't dark. The rest of the place we read, God poured forth a darkness that could be felt. People are like, well, can you feel that darkness? I'm like, actually, no, I'm actually in Goshen. <laughs> I'm in the light part. And I'm, have you wondered what that would be like? I mean, would it be like so clearly a, a wall of light at that point that it's like you couldn't see, you could see, you couldn't see, you could see? Would you? Do, I would do that. If I were in Goshen, I'd be kind of like, well, check this out. Watch this, you guys. See my foot? It's a magic trick. Well, it's gone. It's back. It's gone. No, maybe that's because that's the kind of person I am. But the reason I say that it was such a clear denunciation between darkness and light and what was clear is God knows how to separate the two. He did that back in Genesis. But what should separate God's people from the rest of the world is we ain't in darkness. We shouldn't be stumbling around in darkness, walking around in darkness. It tells us those that walk around in darkness get drunk in the darkness at night. He goes, that's what the world looks like, carousing party club lifestyle. He goes, expect the world to do that. They're starving for the thing you have. Why would you want to go there? It's like the moment you've actually eaten real food, you really don't want to go back to that other stuff. Well, understand in this, God uses light to separate his people. But then just a couple of chapters later in Exodus 13 and 14, it was light that led the people every night through the wilderness to the promised land. In Leviticus 24, it was the one light, the menorah in the tabernacle that led the priest into the intimacy of God's presence in the Holy of Holies, the Kodesh Kodeshim. Therefore, because it was the priest that was doing so, they were responsible in Numbers 4 and 8 to keep and make sure that that light always, always burned. And for what it's worth, Psalm 4, also Psalm 44, 89 and 90, tell us that God's countenance, his, if you will, his panim, it means his face, actually sheds light. That God's word, Psalm 119, 105, is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. A light unto our feet. You get that. Proverbs 6, 23, God's commandment. Isaiah 51, 4, God's justice. Hosea 6, 5, Zephaniah 3, 5, God's judgments. But my favorite, Psalm 27, 1, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6, and 2 Timothy 1, 10 say God's salvation through the light of gospel in the face of Jesus is the light we really need. And without that, we'll never be led out of the darkness. We'll never be led out of the land of slavery. We'll never be led into the land of plenty. And we'll never be in the place of deep intimacy with God. But that's okay in this sense. That we know God set that in motion. That's not okay to not have those things. What's okay is to know that God's spirit is moving. And when God's spirit moves, his word goes forth. And when God's word goes forth, God's light goes forth. And when God's light goes forth, life comes. And what he tells us is when the light shines, two sides come. Notice what it says. Men loved darkness. Interesting, because it was just a couple of verses prior, we read about someone else loving something. Do you remember what it was? Let me give you a hint. It was 316. Who was the lover there? It was God. And was it, what was it that he loved? 
Yeah, you and me. Exactly, he loved us. And in him loving us, he showed it by giving up the most important thing. You know what's interesting is the same word, and some of you are familiar, there are different Greek words for love. Eros is a selfish love. Phileo is more of a mutuality. Storge is one of a family. But then there's this one, agape. Agape is the one of complete surrender, if you will. And in the simplest sense, it's a commitment to completely sacrifice. Well, it's interesting. That's the word that's used here, but it's conjugated different. The word here is the agapaho. And the reason I say that is agapaho speaks of a continual repetition. And what he's saying is men didn't just choose to love at once. Men love and keep loving and keep loving and keep loving and keep loving by choice because it's active. They keep choosing to love darkness. When I walk out there and I want to share Jesus with someone, and you walk out there and you want to share Jesus with your friends, your neighbors, your family, and you wonder why in the world won't they take a God who loves them? Because they're already in love. And if somebody's already in love and you're trying to pitch the perfect person for them, the words fall on deaf ears. Even if you are confident that's the right person. But if their heart already belongs to someone else, why in the world would they listen? You know what's amazing? How committed we are before Jesus to the darkness in comparison to the commitment we have to him after. Because we continue to keep choosing. On November 4th, 27 and a half years ago, I stood at an altar with a beautiful young lady who has not ceased to be either beautiful nor young, by the way. That's on the record. And I said, I do. I committed. The commitment had already happened prior. But I didn't just say, I commit to say I do today and that's enough. We knew, we committed to say that we commit every day of our life from that point forward. That's the point. Every day you wake up, you recommit. Now, that doesn't mean it has to be a ceremony. But let's face it. If you don't make the choice, the day will try to make the choice for you. And that's the same with the Lord. And understand here, he says, men love darkness rather than light. They had a choice. But they didn't love light. They loved darkness. And you know why? Because what they did was, what? You tell me. What's the verse say? Evil. The word is paneras. Try that word. Paneras. Paneras literally means to cause her harm or hurt. God doesn't call something evil because he just doesn't like it. I mean, there are certain things in life I don't like. I'm not a fan of country music. You're welcome to like it. That's fine. It's hard for me to put the two words together. I was raised in Chicago originally. My mom was a jazz singer. Country was anathema. I'm not a coffee drinker. You're welcome to like coffee. I appreciate coffee because it makes my wife smile. Good enough for me. I'm a tea drinker, and I'm okay with that. I've come to grips with that. But I won't call them evil. Well, maybe in jest, but not in sincerity. There's certain kinds of music you may not like. There's certain types of food you may not like either that I might bury my face in, or vice versa. But that doesn't make it evil. What makes it evil is when it hurts you. So understand, when God calls something evil... He doesn't call it evil because he just doesn't, it doesn't appeal to him. It isn't like God's just got opinion on things because he's, he's got opinions. I've learned this, have you, that people with an awful lot of opinions are seldom happy. You know, I'm kind of one of those people, it's like, uh, you know, I really don't need opinions on everything. But there are certain things that just kind of strike you, and you're like, oh, that's really cool. Some things are like, oh, that's not really not. 
most things I'm just going to enjoy because I'm going to enjoy them. But when God says something is evil, it is not because God just doesn't, it just rubs them the wrong way. It isn't like God goes, oh, you know, personally, I, I think that music is trash or whatever. I mean, in the end of it all, when God says something is evil, it's because it hurts you. Because it hurts the thing he loves, which is you. And God, if you think about this, God could not love the thing that hurts you and love you at the same time. And you'd say, well, what happens if a person hurts me? Well, I'd say the, the actions and the sins God still hates, even though he loves the person. When I was 11, my mother died of cancer. Most of you already know that. I never knew a day when she wasn't well. From the day that we were born, and I have a, I'm a twin. You can pray for that one. The day that I was born, it was, it was common knowledge that my mother was on her way out sooner or later. I mean, they gave her... I mean, my mom was a stubborn... Stubborn, stubborn woman. Tenacious, that's the polite word for it. But in the end of it all, when she, if they told her, you're going to die by this day, she would purposely live past that day just to prove them wrong. I mean, that was totally my mother. Matter of fact, they said, there's no way you could live past this day. And it was the one day she ripped all the tubes out of her face and nose and everything and walked around just with this, ha, 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 how are you like me now? I mean, you know, obviously that didn't get handed down. But the, the point is this, is that because I loved my mother, I hated cancer because I saw what it did to her. And in people that I love, there's been more than my mother that I've watched pass, and most of the people in my family have succumbed to that. When I look at that, I, can't, I, I hate it because I see what it does. I'll be honest with you. I hate drugs, and I hate alcohol. Now, I'm talking from a personal conviction. I'm not talking from a blanket statement. I'm not pulling out some legal trip. Drugs are illegal. You shouldn't do them. It's like the point is, as I've watched people, and I, I even bartended for a good portion of my life when I was younger, I watched people's lives disintegrate in front of me. I never met a guy that was like, you know, my life was really terrible. My kids hated me and my wife hated me. My job was horrible. Then I really started drinking and now my wife loves me and my kids are happy with... You just don't find that kind of story. That's a weird testimonial. But I hate it because I watch what it does to people. And there are certain things in life you watch and you hate them. And you could just say, that's evil. That's not just... Bad. That's bad. Well, understand what God says is people running around in darkness, that's what we do. That's what comes natural to us is we hurt others, we hurt God, and we hurt ourselves. And at the, po- the moment that you realize that, the moment where you come to the conclusion, oh my goodness, I am really hurting someone, what do you do? Because you really are in a crisis now again, aren't you? Do I want to continue doing this? At 14, I joined a band back in the day. I really hadn't planned on it. They were the, they, you know, they were the hip kids in school. They were the popular ones, smooth talkers, by the way. And they talked about, you know, they needed a guitarist. When I was like tugging at their pant, like, excuse me, but I think I can do it. And... Um, I showed up and these guys were, you know, fighting over instruments. And the drummer had this this uh, this broom that was kind of jimmied into a lawnmower handle with a nail on the end of it to hold up his cymbal. I mean, that was kind of experience. Talk about a garage band. It was a garage. And they had never played a song in their life, a full song. But they were movers and shakers. And the guy that was the lead singer at the time went inside after we started playing. And I played a little bit. And he's like, hold on. And he came out and he says, we have a gig tomorrow for a radio station. 
I mean, you guys can't even play your instruments. So we stayed up all night learning, learning these, just the simplest songs we could. I remind you, no, no consciousness of Christ at all at that time in my life. I was 14. You know what you wanted 14 to be liked? To be adored. Just, let's just be honest. At 14, you want every girl to turn their head and fall over when you walk in the room. Well, for me at least. I'm just being a little honest here. And I'll tell you, I played, we played that first gig. It was raining out. I jumped. I remember jumping into a puddle and getting, like, feeling the buzz of the electricity, knowing that that was probably harmful for what it was worth. But people cheered. And the moment that they cheered, I was like, well, that feels good. Oh, man, that feels good. Well, ultimately, the lead singer said, well, we don't have really good instruments, so why don't we do a benefit concert? I didn't realize the benefit concert was actually for him. So he raised all this money, and then he took it and left. So we benefited the wrong thing. And here's the best part. He joined the army and spent it all on clothes. First of all, there was an awful lot of money to spend on clothes. And what was he going to do within the army? So like, they give you your own clothes. And then we were kind of like the dust settled, and we all stared at each other with the crickets in the background. And they were like, what do you do? And they're like, you should sing. I'm like, well, I've sung jazz, but I've never done anything like that before. So we were in a battle of the bands, and I kind of had to step up. And here's the, the forgive me for going so length, and here's the point of it, is that ultimately this, it was like we were put in a slingshot and someone let go. And it just got crazier and crazier and crazier. And five people became 10, became 100, became 1,000, became 20,000, became 30,000 so quick. And there you are standing in front of, we would just call it the sea of people because you couldn't see the end of it. It just, it was just like everywhere when someone moved, they all kind of moved with them. So it just looked like you were staring at an ocean of heads. But at that point now it becomes empty and shallow and meaningless. But there was a girl in my neighborhood and in my neighborhood that was a pretty rough neighborhood who started sending letters. And for the moment, it was validating because she was, we, we called her the untouchable because she, like, she had she'd split the hood because she had made it onto these magazines as a model and they were flying her all over the world in her teens. And she was kind of like, oh, she made it. You know, and we used to say she jumped the hood. And when she started sending letters, man, my band was so jealous. We could care less about other people because all they saw was this person you portrayed. But that girl kind of knew us. And as the band became more and more popular, she, her letters became more and more intense. Really, I like you. I think it's awesome. And, you know, we should connect and it's cool. And we, we, you know, every once in a while we'd wind up someplace that was a social gathering. It was always social and it was always in public. And uh, then, of course, because she was a figure, a public figure, and I was a public figure, they would, we'd wind up on covers of magazines and she's having my baby now and all, you know, that, which wasn't possible. And uh, that time, and, and the reason I say that is ultimately we're sitting in a record label office with this contract, and I have this, po- this letter in my pocket I haven't read from her. And, uh, and I'm like, this is going to get me through. At this point, the, the contract meant nothing. The, the, the music meant nothing. The, the, all of that stuff meant nothing. But this letter was like the thing. This was the drug that was going to get me through this. And I'm like, everybody wants this, and I have it, and it's meaningless to me. It doesn't mean anything. So I open up the letter, and it's written in pencil, and it's stained with tears, which I didn't expect. And it basically said, hey, I realize you don't love me, and because you don't love me, no one's going to love me. It was a suicide letter. And I felt like all the air in the room had been sucked out. I was like, oh my goodness. 
I'm killing people. I'm hurting people to be liked, to feel important, to be validated. And it's one thing when you run from the smoking gun, but how do you run from the smoking gun when, when you're the smoking gun? I tore up the contract and I walked out of the room and I never looked back. Because I knew at that moment that was a lot. I would never wanted to do that again. And it was what that was, what it would take ultimately for me to realize that, uh, that I had blood on my hands and the only thing that could wash off that blood was the blood of God's Son. I am so thankful for that. So I'd never be in another band. So I'd never play music again. <laughs> Let me recap that and we'll get back into it. But here's the point. is you get to this point where you're in a crisis and you're like, look, at, if I choose to continue on in this, this may become a daily occurrence. I mean, when one person pops out of the woodwork and does this in your face, you wonder how many other people could have done something like that that you just never knew about. And I don't know what you're doing what you're not doing. But I can tell you, before we knew Jesus, and if you don't know Jesus, what you're doing is hurting people. And then you can have the best reasons. You want to be liked. You want to feel important. They're, they're, they're fundamental appetites within us. But it doesn't make it better. And what he tells us is, is that when the light shines in the darkness, there's some who have no interest in stepping into the light because their deeds are evil. And you know what happens when you step in the light. You're going to know it. And at this moment, you can convince yourself it's not as bad as you think it is. Even though inside you really do know it's bad, don't you? Let's be honest. Quick comment and comment on that epilogue because I have to tell you this part. So inevitably the question might be, well, did you ever find out? Of course not. Why would I want to find out? If I didn't find out whatever happened to Karen, well then at least there was hope. Does that make any sense? A few years ago, eight, nine years ago, I don't know, we're on tour. I'm in a band again. But this time Christian. I had found Jesus. He had found me. And now my whole life has changed. And we're going to go and we're going to tell everybody about Jesus. And we're playing a similar type of music. And we're making an awful lot of noise in Russia. And it's, it's, a big, it's the biggest events. Um, matter of fact, we're playing in front of 30,000 people again. And uh, in one particular case where a whole city basically shows up. Anyways, and... Uh, and there's like, there's an email for you. And I'm like, you know, it's Russia. So it's like everything either comes on the back of a pigeon or you get, you know, Wi-Fi like one place in all of Moscow. And of course, at that point, you have to do it like in front of the, the leaders of KGB. Anyway, so they like, there's this, this email and we thought you might want to get it. It came to our office. I'm like, okay. And so we took a look at it and it said, hey, are you this particular person back from this particular thing and so forth? Hey, I don't know if you remember me, but my name's Karen. And I gave my life to Jesus, and I'm a youth leader in, like, St. Paul, Minnesota, or something like that. And I was like, oh, my goodness. But God knew that if he had told me that that was what was going to happen at the moment, I wouldn't be in the crisis I was in that, that led me to him. So God redeemed everything, including the girl. So praise, praise the Lord for that. But please hear me, because i got to wrap this up for the sake of time, but we got to make clear on this. Light shines in the darkness. Obviously, darkness can't fight it. Darkness can't land a punch. When light shines in the darkness, darkness only has one choice, and that's to flee. And so if darkness is fleeing and somebody's in the darkness, guess what happens to the person in the darkness? They're going to have to flee too. 
Because they don't, if otherwise they're going to have to stand in the light. And what it tells us is, is that men love darkness. And they loved, and they loved, and they loved, and they loved, and they loved darkness. And then they woke up the next day and said, darkness, I love you, I commit today too. Darkness, I love you, I commit today too. And that's every day. And we may not say it like that, that would be silly. But to be honest, there are people who probably would say it that plainly in front of you. Have you ever told anyone, my goal is to make you sin, my goal is to corrupt you. I'm like, well, thank you for being honest. And so we have people who love the darkness and we have a God who so loved the world and we have to choose a side. It says in Ecclesiastes 2.13 that as wisdom exceeds folly, so does light exceed darkness. Darkness doesn't stand a chance. It says in Ephesians 5.13 that whatever makes manifest is light. When light is shown on things, it becomes really clear. I'm working in the bars when I did. One thing is because we used to tell people, okay, we want to warn you, the lights are about to come on. We used to call them the ugly lights because, you know, everything's kind of dim and everyone's kind of cute in the dimness. But you know what happens. You have to turn on those lights because you can't clean in that darkness because you can't see dark. You can't see the dirt in that darkness. And so it's amazing how many people you're like, just want to warn you, five minutes from now, the, the ugly lights are coming on. That was usually my comment. And then how many people would flee in those five minutes? Because, you know, what happened is you weren't just finding dirt on the floor. It was like, you know, it's like the, you watch two people look at each other, lights go on, they're like, ah, whoa, that's you. That's what you look like. Well, and again, the whole point of it is, is that there is this point where they don't want to step in the light. And it tells us that. It says in verse 20, everyone practicing evil hates the light. Now, this word evil is a different word, by the way. Of course, what's foolish? We get the word foul from it. But when those who practice foul and heinous things, they're not going to like the light. Matter of fact, it isn't like, and please hear me, it isn't even they're going to be indifferent they're going to hate it. And this is something Jesus tells us, by the way. It's like you can't love both sides. You can't love God and mammon. You can't love two masters. You're going to love one. You're going to hate the other. And he says you can't love light and darkness. But here's the funny part. And it's actually not funny at all. But here's the thing. The crisis is, if you really think you love both sides, I'm going to dare say it. You don't love the light. Because you can't love the light and love darkness. You can love those in the dark, but you can't love darkness. And he says, those who are in the darkness hate the light. But that doesn't mean you know it, because our heart is deceitful and lies to us. We could believe that we love the light when we don't, but what we really love is darkness. How do we know we love darkness? Because we won't walk away from those things or admit that the things we do are really harmful that we actually really know are. He goes, they, they will not come into the light. And by the way, that's continual is the idea here. They will not come. Because if they did, it says that their deeds would be exposed. And Lengecho, by the way, is the idea that it would tell a fault or convict. But here's the good news. There's another choice too. Their choice is either to come in light and admit that the thing that they're doing is evil and live, or live the lie and continue in the darkness. It says, but he who does the truth, verse 21, they'll come. Interesting, the word come here for what it's worth, Erchemai, means to akin, to accompany, or to step in. They come into the light, that their deeds are clearly seen, that they've been done by God. But wait a minute. When I step in the light, am I not just clearly seeing that what I'm doing is horrible? But when I step in the light, the blood of Jesus purifies me from all sin. And if the blood of Jesus purifies me from all sin, guess what? I don't see when we're done my sin anymore. You know, all I see is what Christ has done. 
what's amazing is this cusp, this place right outside of Goshen, you know, where it's Egypt, and this is still Egypt at the moment, but this is where God's people are. There's this place, this line, and there's dark here, and there's light here, and they're like, what happens? And, I, and it tells us that, is, that Egypt, I'm sorry, Israel left a mixed multitude. I mean, let's face it, after a couple plagues, I'm jumping into Goshen. How about you? I'm like, I'm done with this locust bitey bug thing. You know, at this point, boils, we're done. I'm heading into Goshen. But it's like, but wait a minute. But it's like, if I go into this, you're going to know I'm Egyptian. But if I go into this, you're going to know that I was part of the enemy. If you're going to be this, you will know I beat a slave. If I step into this now, you will know who I was. But what happens is somewhere between this dark spot and this light spot is the blood of Jesus where all of those things, I'm like, okay, I'll admit it. This is who I am. And God goes, boom, and he washes it all away. And he's like, now you're somebody new. So by the time I'm here, it isn't like I step, I won't step into the light because what's clearly going to be seen is how evil I am. I have to admit that before I even step into the light in the first place. But if I'm willing to step in the light, then what happens is, is that now people go, whoa, what's different about you, man? Or woman. I'm forgiven. I'm set free. That's who I am now. I'm not that person anymore. I am born again. And I remind you, the context was a man in the night asking Jesus, whoa, wait a minute, what? Born again? What in the world does that mean? And he says, look it, there are no unborn again Christians. Scripture says, he says here, unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of God. So when someone says, oh, you're a Christian, are you a born again? You know why they say that? Because lots of people are calling themselves Christians that aren't. And it's not for me to judge. It's for God to judge, but I can tell you according to Scripture, either you're born again or you're not Christian. That's what the Scripture says. And you know what? When you're born again, you leave there, and this is where you go. And people go on, they say, you know what clearly seen now? What they see is that God's done, look what God's done in you. So listen as we close. Ephesians 5, it says, you were once darkness. It says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that the God of this age has blinded the eyes of those who won't believe. Now, they won't believe, so he's happy to take away their sight, lest the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, I'm sorry, the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is, excuse me, is the image of God should shine upon them. But it says then in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, that God, who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, was shown into our our hearts now, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now that light shines here, what am I to do? Shall I retract and recoil? into my darkness or step up and step in and to live. We're not darkness. We're light now. And we're sons of light. We don't belong to the darkness. He called us out of the darkness into his marvelous light. First Peter 2.9 told me that. And I'm stepping into the light. I'm stepping into a place that could be dark, but it won't be once I step in now. So what am I going to do? Am I going to step in? And if I am going to step in, I would hear Jesus tell me what he told those new believers in Matthew 5, where Jesus went when John 8 and John 8 and 9, when he says, I am the light of the world, and he turns and he says, now you are the light of the world. And he goes, you know what you need to do with that light? You raise it up. You don't hide it. Because what would happen if you hide it? Well, if you hide it, all the people are going to see then is obscurity and shadows and darkness or semi-darkness. But we're called, to, we're called to shine. So here's what we're going to do as we pray. I want to challenge you today. If you claim Christ 
Is there any area of your life you're still trying to somehow farm out to the darkness? Today he's shining on it, and if you give him a chance, he'll show you. Hand that over to me too. Say it's bad, we'll admit it's bad, and then I'll wash it so you can see what I do when you give it to me. Maybe you've never said yes to Jesus. You have that choice now. You must be born again. Remember those two things? Receive and believe. God's spirit has moved. His word has gone forth. Light has gone forth. The only thing left is whether you want his life. That's your choice. Will you pray with me? God, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful text. I want to thank you for for how you've spoken to my heart and encouraged me. And I pray today, Lord, that you would minister right now in this room. By the power of your spirit, Lord, minister. Would you please speak? Would you please, Lord, minister? Would you show us, Lord, what it is that you want to do in each of our lives and what we are keeping ourselves from by trying to somehow play both fields? And today, you tell us light can't dwell with darkness. We're not to be unequally yoked because there's no fellowship with light and darkness. And in this room, for the believer first, because you tell us it's time for judgment to begin and there at the house of God, here with your people, we want to say, God, we don't want to live part in Goshen and part in the rest of Egypt. We want to be completely yours. And so, Lord, today, shine your light not only upon all of us, but through us as well, so that those dwelling in darkness could come to the light and be set free. And Lord, here in this room, if there be, or at the sound of this voice, if there be any or many who have yet to say yes to you as their Lord and Savior, the Bible says if you're willing to confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised them from the dead, you'll be saved. Pray this prayer with me right now. Accept the gift of Jesus. Step into the light. God, I'm a sinner. And what I do hurts. It hurts me. It hurts you. It hurts others. But I believe that your light shining upon me as I say these things and me surrendering these things to you, accepting that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, was buried and rose again on the third day just like your scripture promised, that accepting the gift of Jesus washes all of them away. But I don't want them just washed away and they continue in them. But today, set me free, Lord, to walk away from these things for good and to walk in the light as you are in the light. So, Lord, please now have me. I step into the light and I say, here I am, I'm yours. I surrender myself to you in Jesus' name. If you agree with this prayer, say it with me. Amen. Lord, you've heard our prayer. I want to thank you for being here and for ministering to us. Lord, 
cement that conviction that we say yes to say yes for the rest of our lives. Jesus, in your name. Amen. Hey, let's sing one last song and we'll conclude today. Um, Light of the world, you step down into darkness. Open my eyes, let me see. Beauty that made this heart adore you. Hope of a life spent with you. Light of the world, light of the world. You step down into darkness. Open my eyes, let me see. Beauty that made this heart adore you. Hope of a life spent with you. Cause here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you're my God. You're all together lovely, all together worthy, all together wonderful to me. King of all days, oh so highly exalted, glorious in heaven above. Humbly you came to the earth, you created all for love's sake, became poor. So here I am to worship, here I am to bow down, here I am to say that you're my God. You're all together lovely, all together worthy, all together wonderful to me. So here I am to worship, here I am to bow down, here I am to say that you're my God. You're all together lovely. All together worthy, all together wonderful to me. Oh Lord, here I am to worship, here I am to bow down, here I am to say that you're my God, you're all together, all together worthy. All together wonderful to me. You're all together wonderful to me. You're all together wonderful to me. Lord, let us worship you not just with song but with our lives. To wake up every day and say yes to you as our Lord. 
Lord, to step in the light and you tell us if we walk in the light as you are in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, your son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So Lord, may we walk today in the light as you are in the light and may we make that choice from this point forth to do so. We commit ourselves to you, Lord. We commit ourselves to commit ourselves. And even as we once loved and loved and loved and loved again that which was evil, now may we love and love more and love even more you, Lord, in complete and ardent and absolute sacrifice in the joy of our surrender. In Jesus' name, amen.